which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruick. And how are we? Good. Grab your Bible. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5 in the home stretch. 1 John chapter 5. I am a uh, forgetful person. Appreciate the no amens right there. Uh, I'm usually, you know, day to day, I'm usually thinking about so many things that I tend to forget one or two. This is never uh, more obvious to me than when I'm getting ready to leave my house, going from inside to the outside to the car and heading down the road. And so I've come up with sort of maybe, uh, I guess, you know, a checklist of essentials for my own, my own sake, because far too many times I get in the car, start the car, the garage door's down, and I've forgotten something, well, you know, just a basic thing, like the keys maybe. And uh, so then I realize the car's not even started, and uh, I'm just sitting there. Um, maybe, maybe you can identify with this. Um, I just always seem to leave something behind. So I, I've come up now with just this routine of the basics that I have to make sure that I, that I have with me. Um, like, uh, do I have the keys? Do I have my cell phone? Not only do I have my cell phone, but do I have the charger? Because inevitably I get somewhere and my cell phone is then not charged, and then I'm just driving around with a cell phone that doesn't work. So I need my charger. Uh, I need a watch. I started wearing a watch a few years ago, and if I leave the house without my watch, I feel naked. Anybody else feel naked without their watch? Yeah, I feel naked. Uh, chapstick. I, I got to have chapstick like everywhere now. I, have, I should have chapstick in my pocket. I do. Uh, I keep some in my car. I keep some on my dresser, uh, mostly because Grady steals it, and I think he eats chapstick. Um, so I have to keep chapstick everywhere. So I, I check. I go through the routine. Do I have, do I have chapstick? Also now... Uh, I carry a pocket knife because I live in Jackson County, and so it's a wimpy little thing, pocket knife, but, but I, I have a pocket knife. Uh, Jeremy, you probably have a real man's knife, but I just have this thing. Um, so uh, sunglasses, I'm a Florida boy in the end, so I've got to have my sunglasses. Uh, so I'm go, you know, I, I just go through this routine, and, and, and before I leave, I just start checking myself. Now I have to add to that, you know, did I put the dog in the kennel, or is it wandering around outside somewhere? Did I, did I remember to bring the boys with me, or are they still at home? Like, where's dad? Uh, do I have pants on is always a good question to ask yourself, uh, even before you get outside. But I, I have to do that. I have to do that with at least the essentials, because if I have anything extra to do, like take that Redbox movie back that's been sitting there for 20 days, I think I paid more for uh, uh, some kid's movie than you know, it would have been to buy it new. Um, but if I have anything extra like that, then inevitably one of the essentials gets left. I, I left just this week, and I got halfway to Athens for an appointment and didn't have my cell phone. And so then when I got to my appointment, the boys were at my in-law's house, and so I had to get on. I don't know if you've seen these. They're these phones that you pick up and they have wires attached to them. And there's a big box at the bottom, and you have to push these numbers. And uh, what I realized then was, I don't know anybody's number. So that's a problem. But if I don't go through that routine, if I don't go through that checklist, then inevitably I, I leave something. Um, when I've gone through that list, though, I have like this greater confidence that I, can, that I can leave, that I can go. It brings me some level of, you might say, assurance that I'm ready for the day. 
John's letter, as we've been looking through it, is kind of like that. So that we're ready for the day when we step from time and space into eternity. John has been walking us through sort of this Christianity checklist. This is what Christianity looks like. Do you check the boxes? Do you measure up with these things? So that we have some surety that we're prepared. He writes this letter. So that we, so that we know that we've, we've got the essentials. He doesn't want us wondering. He doesn't want us doubting. Did I forget something important to do in my Christianity, right? So like a checklist, we've seen that John kind of rattles off things that come with being born again. The essentials. Do we believe he came in the flesh? That should be a part of of your, your belief system. Do we love the brethren? Is there that evidence in our life? Do we keep his commandments? Is that something that can be said of us? Are his commandments burdensome to us? Or, or are they something we long to keep? John's been giving us, giving us those things and more, as we've seen in his letter. In this final chapter, 1 John chapter 5, he focuses in on the one thing that makes all the other things really come together. He focuses on the one thing that comes with being born again that makes all the other things natural. And so, in a sense, you'll be able to work backwards from this one thing. Do we believe that Jesus came in the flesh? Do we believe, namely, in Jesus? See, Jesus is the linchpin for the whole letter. Over and over and over, John's going to go back to what we think about Jesus. So if you want like a cliff note version of how to determine when you're out in the world, whether somebody is on base or off base, ask them what, what their beliefs are on Jesus. See, see what they have to say about Jesus. If they, if they start to say something about Jesus, but then they include a however, then it's probably going astray. If they've got some okay but in regard to what they believe about Jesus and what Scripture says about Jesus, then you can, you can pretty much assume that they've gone wrong somewhere. If it, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't finally, in the end, and primarily, from the beginning, start and end with Jesus, then something's wrong. And John believes that. In this final chapter, he focuses on Jesus. Belief in Jesus was on the front end of our passage last week and on the tail end of our passage last week, kind of like bookends. Verse 1 of chapter 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. The end of verse 5 of chapter 5, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Belief in Jesus it's the beginning and the end of the thing. All the other things that we've talked about, all those other things on the checklist, they come when we have belief in Jesus. When we don't have belief in Jesus, they may be there, but they're going to be short-lived. They're going to be fraudulent. They're going to be pretend, if you will. We're going to be trying on Christianity, but Christianity won't be our new nature. And John has been adamant over and over through this letter that, hey, here's what, just what Christianity looks like. I'm not trying to pep talk you into this thing. I'm not trying to convince you that you need to do more of these things. I'm just telling you, this is Christianity. Christianity is that we long to keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. That was just even last week. Do you remember? That, that's just what comes with the new nature. So it's not a list of to-dos that we're checking off, but they are things that we can look at in our life and say, yeah, that's, that's me. And his, and his goal, the heart of the apostle, as he nears 100 years old, in all of his wisdom, is for us to walk away from this letter with greater confidence, greater, greater surety. But it all comes down to Christ.
It's in Christ that John means for us to have our greatest confidence. This is why he writes, according to verse 13, skip ahead a little bit. These things I have written to you, chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you. So this is, this is the last time he's going to tell us why he's writing. So, so you could look at it in terms of this is the, the summation of all the reasons why I've written to you. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And, and in that verse, the letter essentially ends. What you get from there on is postscript. It, it's it's the, the goodbyes. It's the final thoughts, the things you tag on at the end of the letter. That's where he concludes. I've, I've said all this for you who believe, little children, the beloved, the church that he's writing to, so that you have confidence, so you know what you have in the Son of God. You who believe, I want you to, I want you to be confident. I want you to be sure. I want you to be sure about Jesus. How can John be so sure? And how then can he dare to offer us such assurance. Today I want to show you verses 6 through 13. Let me read these for you. Chapter 5, verse 6. This is the one, and it's a capital O, so the one is Jesus. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It's the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement, meaning none of them conflict the other. If we receive the testimony of men, verse 9, the testimony of God is even greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. In verses 6 through 11, I think think John is able to, to speak with such confidence and he's able to offer us such confidence because he believes that somebody has testified to the truth. You know, when you give testimony to something, you're you're swearing that what you're what you're talking about is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. John has confidence in in Jesus because Jesus has been sworn to. Jesus has been testified to. Now, think about this for a moment. Uh, I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in his uh, translation, paraphrase of the Bible, the message. He says, or he uh, paraphrases those very verses this way. Jesus, the divine Christ... He experienced a life-giving birth and a death-killing death, not only birth from the womb, but baptismal birth of his ministry and sacrificial death. And all the while, the Spirit is confirming the truth, the reality of God's presence at Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, bringing those occasions alive for us. It's a triple testimony. The Spirit, the baptism, the crucifixion. And these three perfectly agree. Triple testimony. You see, in Jesus' baptism, where the Spirit descended and, and, and joined with Jesus, affirmed Jesus, helped us to know that from heaven, this is the Son of God. The Spirit there comes upon Jesus to begin His formal ministry for the next three years. At that, at that, mo- at that time, 
we, we find Jesus born of water, not just water of the mother's womb, but he's, he's born of water with the Spirit's presence there. That, that's probably what John is thinking about when he talks about the testimony of the water. But it's not just the testimony of the water. He says it's also the testimony of the blood. What is the testimony of the blood? Well, that, that would be the cross. That would be a sacrifice. In the blood is the life, according to Old Testament Scripture. According to God, the sacrifice has to be made by the draining of the blood. The blood has to be shed. And so the testimony of Jesus comes threefold. The Spirit involved in all of it with the water and with the blood. From baptism to the cross, all of it points to Jesus being the Son of God. He is who He says He is. All of them, with the Spirit anointing them, tells us that Jesus, He can be trusted. The testimony of His life is true. If you, if you want another place to look at this, you can go to John's words in the Gospel of John. So uh, this won't be on the screen. If you want to turn, turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John in your Gospel. So we'll be back to your left. John chapter 5, same apostle. He says it this way. These are Jesus' words as he records them. I'll start in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. You're going to hear some of that as we go back into 1 John. That's how he's going to wrap it up with some very similar language. And he gave him, that meaning the Father gave Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So this is how dead men come alive, is what John's saying. Jump to verse 30. I can do nothing, Jesus says, on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Why? Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Who sent him? The Father. The Father. If I alone testify about myself. Now, John's back to that same language of a testimony. Jesus, though, he records, uses that language. Maybe that's where he picks it up for First John. If I alone testify about myself, Jesus said, my testimony is not true. There is another, whoever, how test, who, there is another who testifies to me, however. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Meaning, the Father says this about me. And of course, if I were just to tell you, then that would not convince anyone, perhaps. But the Father has said this, so it can be trusted. His testimony is true. It's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He goes on in the rest of chapter 5 of John chapter 5 to talk about the testimony of John the Baptist, to talk about the testimony of the works, the miracles that he did, to talk about the testimony more of the Father, the testimony of Scripture. Jesus, in his work, can be trusted. I think that's what he's saying here in 1 John chapter 5. And you get this, you get this, this threefold imagery that comes from the Apostle John. He can be trusted because, because the Spirit said so at his baptism. The water points to his his reliability. The blood points to his reliability. He, he made a sacrifice for us once for all. And the Spirit testifies to both. All three agree. You know, it's a little bit, I'll just be honest with you, it's a little bit a strange language. 
Most scholars have a, a very difficult time trying to figure out exactly why John talks this way. Probably the best understanding of why John goes into this, this talk of the blood and of the water is back to the context of, of why John writes. Because there are those guys who were called in that day Gnostics. There were those who were saying, okay, we believe that Jesus came in the, that God came in the Spirit, but He wasn't in the person of Jesus in the flesh. And they were trying to, in essence, protect this holy God from being a part of human flesh. Because God in His holiness could never be a part of humanity in the flesh because flesh is broken and flesh is, flesh is rotten, flesh is sinful. And so to say that God came in the flesh, they thought belittled God. Now, that's the, that's the most positive way to put their heresy, okay? But that was a big part of it. But John has to come along and say, no, he was in the flesh. I was here to see that he was in the flesh. The Spirit came upon him at his baptism. It was God walking around in the flesh all the way to the cross. When they would say that, that the Spirit, maybe it came in the baptism, but it surely left him before he ever got to the cross because the Holy God could not be a part of that. Well, in protecting a holy God from that, guess what you do? You rob the cross of any power because now God is not there. It's just, it's just a man, Jesus. And of course, that can't be. That might be part of the reason why John wants us to be confident. If Jesus is the linchpin for all of our assurance and all of our confidence in life, that Jesus better be who he says he is. He better not only be like this good teacher that we listen to and get some advice from, but he better be a holy God in the flesh. If he's not, then, then the thing that happened with the water and the baptism, that was a sham. That, that thing that we trust in in the cross, well, it, it's no more than anybody else who's gone to the cross. So John, in an effort to help us have great confidence in our faith, we who are the little children he writes to, the beloved he writes to, we to who, in the, in the end here, back to chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. For us who he's writing to, he wants us to have great confidence. But if we, if we, if we pick and choose what we want to be true about Jesus, then, then that, that confidence falls apart. Because all of our confidence, only our confidence is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the water, the blood, and the Spirit, all three testify that He is who He says He is. He goes on, though. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe in the Son of God has made Him, that means the Father, and Jesus by that, by that matter, a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony of God that has been given concerning His Son. You know, in verse 9, he says this. It's interesting. If we receive the testimony of men, and the inference is we do. We tend to rely on the testimony of men, especially when it comes threefold like that. When it's not just out of one source. When it's not just, when it's not just the water, when it's not just the blood, and it's not just the spirit. But when, when three things come together like that, and, and men bring testimony to a court of law like that, we tend to believe it. Now, now what, is he, what is he thinking of when he says something like that? Well, he's most likely thinking of Deuteronomy Chapter 19, verse 15, which says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, which is even better, shall a charge be established. Essentially, in the Old Testament, 
the, the nation of Israel, they were given these guidelines so that they knew if, if a charge was brought against a guy and it just comes randomly from one person and nobody else really agrees with it, then that it gets called into great question. You don't just excommunicate a guy. You don't just kick someone out of the nation of Israel or out of camp because one person says something. I mean, what if that one person just has it in for the guy, right? Two is better, but three is even better than that because to get three people to agree on something and to bring a charge against a guy, I mean, that's got to be that's got to be a real, you know, it's got to be a real coup if you're going to get three people involved in that. So the more people, the point, the principle is, the more people that say the same thing, then the better it can be trusted. And so John has brought the blood, the water, and the Spirit to bear witness to the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. And then he goes on to say, you know, if, if, we'll, if we'll believe the testimony of men as they come in that trifold way even, how much more ought we trust the testimony of God himself? Meaning that the Father himself has anointed the Son and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And that's essentially what John is going to say. We, we listen to Jesus because all things point to him being exactly who he says he is. From his, from his baptism to the cross to the anointing of the Spirit to God's voice himself coming down and saying, this is my son. He could be trusted. He could be trusted. A testimony, as you think about it, is really a promise, isn't it? It's a promise that what I'm saying, what I'm testifying to, is the truth. More than that, it's not just the truth, it can be trusted. To give, to give a false witness in that sense would be perjury in the court of law, wouldn't it? So what is God promising us by His Son? Did you notice? Did you notice what the testimony of the Father is as He promises us through His Son? Look at it again. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe in the Son of God has made him, meaning God, a liar because God testifies to the Son because he's not believed in the testimony of God. There's no trust in God who has given this testimony concerning his Son. Verse 11, and the testimony is this. Here it is. Here's what God has promised. Here's what God has laid his hand upon. As the author of truth, he says this is reliable that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Now, um, that's a statement that we, we easily agree upon in Christianity. But, I, but I, I don't want you to miss a couple things here. Mostly, I don't want you to miss that we get not just life, but we get eternal life. So let me ask you a question. Are you eternal? Be careful. Think about it. The life you have, is it an eternal life? By definition, to be eternal means not only that you will live forever, but that you have lived forever. So have you lived forever or were you created and will live forever? I'll ask the question again. Are you eternal? The answer is no. You're not eternal. Hmm. I will live forever, but I have not lived forever. 
Therefore, I was created at a point in time. I was created by a creator. God is the creator. He was therefore then not created. He will live forever, but as creator and one who has not been created, he has lived forever. God alone is eternal. You tracking with me? You are not. God alone is eternal. Now look back at the promise. Look back at the testimony of God. God has said that we get eternal life, according to verse 11. We get eternal life. How do we get eternal life? How do we go from not having eternal life to having eternal life? How do we get from having an eternal future but not an eternal past? How do we get to to the bloodline, if you will? How do we get to be a part of the one who is only eternal? It's through His Son. So that's a huge promise. It's a promise that we very often just gloss right over. Yeah, we get eternal life. Right. You understand that your very nature is changed? You get put into by the Son. You get put into eternity, past, present, and future. Now, an eternity that you were never a part of before because now you are in His Son who was, who was before the very foundations of the world eternal. How do we get eternal life? Answer, by sharing His life. So where does eternal life lie, according to verse 11? It lies in only one place, in His Son. So verse 12 is the big question. Verse 12 is the big question on John's checklist throughout this letter. Here's what he says. He who has the Son has life. Do you have the Son? If you have the Son... You have life. But there's bad news. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. You notice the definite article there in that verse? He who has the Son has not just life, has the life. What's the life? It's the eternal life. You've got life, but your life will end in eternal death unless you have the Son, and then your life turns into eternal life. He who has the Son has eternal life, the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. So it really, it really just boils down to that verse. That verse is the gospel in summation. I mean, that, that is the, the final and the first check on the list of am I who I think I am in Christ? To the ones... John is writing to, to the little children, to the beloved, to those who are being tossed to and fro, to those who have have false teachers telling them that Christianity looks like this. No, Christianity looks like this. Are you sure about this? No, are you sure about this? Are you sure he was in the flesh? All all those things that are coming at you, the question that it really boils down to, the question that, that when answered brings real confidence and real assurance is this. Do you have the Son? If you have the Son, you get eternal life. The end. But if you do not have the Son, you do not get eternal life. On the contrary, the Bible will tell us in its totality that you get eternal death and damnation. You get hell. Not only do you just miss heaven, but you will live eternally into the future in a place called hell. 
guy named Archibald Alexander Hodge, A.A. Hodge. If you got a name like Archibald, you just get listened to, right? I think so. He says, There is nothing in the world that works such satanic and profound, God-defiant pride as false assurance. Meaning thinking you have something when you don't. That's of the devil. On the other hand, nothing works such utter humility or brings such utter self-emptiness as the childlike spirit of true assurance. I think that's what John, the elderly apostle, wants for his little children as he writes. For we as his little children as he writes. He wants utter, self-emptied, childlike True assurance comes only in Jesus. Romans 8, Paul would agree when he says this, who is, it, who is it that will condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. In the Greek, that's only one word. More than conquerors, it's just one word. Could be translated something like super conquerors. Incidentally, it's the same word that John uses in chapter 5, verse 4. We become more than conquerors in Christ. You know, assurance and confidence, it's not just for eternity, is it? Why is this such a powerful letter? Why are these such powerful words? Why is it that John writes these things so that we who believe in the name of the Son of God will know that we have eternal life? It's not just because we need assurance for, for the next phase, for eternity. It's not just that we need confidence for after death. I don't know about you, but right here, right now, long before, hopefully, my death, I need some confidence. I need some assurance that no matter if there's distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or tribulation, no matter what, I need some assurance that I am not just, I'm not just going to live through it with scars, that I'm going to be more than a conqueror. Um, the truth is nothing calls your confidence or your assurance into question more than tragedy. And that's something we deal with right here, right now. I mean, this isn't just, this is, this isn't just a letter that helps you to know I've got my ticket to heaven and okay, I'm, I'm, I'll just tell you, if you live long in this life, stuff happens. The surety of eternity and your part in eternal life, I can't tell you, I can't tell you what it does for your faith right here, right now. A guy named uh, Horatio Spafford could tell you, however. On December 1st, 1873, Horatio Spafford received the following cable from his wife, Anna. Saved alone. Saved alone. That was the message he got. What it means is that she was the only one who survived. 
Earlier that year, Horatio had bought tickets for his family to board the Grand SS Ville de Havre, a French liner of luxurious proportions. They were going to take a trip to France. See, he and his family had suffered uh, great loss in the uh, Chicago fire of 1871. And Horatio knew that his family needed and deserved. They were long overdue for a vacation. So uh, shortly before they were supposed to leave, a business deal was offered to Horatio. And to his regret, he had to stay back and send his family, his wife and four daughters, ahead on the ship to cross the sea to France. And he would catch up with his family later. He would be delayed. The story goes that actually on the day of their departure, he had this sense from God that he should shift, change the rooms that his family was staying in. He had no idea why. And so he did. He just followed the prompting of the Spirit and he changed rooms. He changed rooms and then after a moving farewell, which took place between him and his four girls, Anna, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanita, they knew they would miss their father, he knew they would miss him. But they said their goodbyes. Little did he know that this would be the last time he would see his four daughters alive. All four of them would drown in the disastrous wreck of the ocean liner. The cabin that he had originally reserved for his family was one of the first to be flooded. It would have killed all of his family, including his wife. It killed all of the occupants that were now in it. He had changed the room, reservations, and had he not done so, even his wife would have been taken. When Horatio received the cable a few weeks later from his wife, it took some time for him to get the news of who, who survived. The story goes that he paced all night long, and he said nothing, until finally one of his, one of his friends who was waiting, just waiting, mourning with him, testified that Horatio uttered these words, I'm glad to trust the Lord when it will cost me something. I imagine he said those words as a confession of his own um, weakness because I imagine everything about him was saying, how do I trust the Lord when it costs me so much? But as a way of affirming his own faith, he says, I'm glad to trust the Lord when it will cost me something. On his way overseas, on another ship to join his wife, the uh, captain of the, of the ship solemnly showed him the exact location where the tragedy had occurred. They stopped where his wife and daughter's ship had sunk. And uh, while contemplating the Atlantic Ocean, the greatness of it, while mourning the great loss in the very spot where he lost it, he felt a deep conviction that although his girls' bodies were somewhere three miles beneath him, they had escaped this world. Their heavenly Father was keeping them safe in his arms. And eventually, he and his wife would see them again. For he knew that it was well with their souls. So it could be well with his soul. So he dug down, as he looked over the railing, he dug down into his pocket and pulled out some hotel stationery and a pencil and began to, began to write. He wrote 
hymn that is one of the great hymns of our faith, maybe one you'll recognize. He penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so it is well with my soul. For, for me, be it Christ, be it Christ, hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine. For in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. Thou shalt whisper thy peace to my soul. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, there's no greater question for a mere mortal to answer than Is there eternal life and do we have a part in it? Thanks be to God that through your Son we become joint heirs. Thank you that the water and the blood and the Spirit testify. Thank you that you affirm the promise that is our Savior. Thank you, Lord, that you are good and your love is great. No matter what comes, Lord, no matter what hardship, no matter what peril comes our way, might our souls bless you, Lord. Might we join in with creation to sing your praise. No matter what happens in this life, no matter how death comes, we can have confidence. We can have assurance that we have our part in life eternal because by faith we have Your Son. We have Your Son. We have Jesus. And we who have Jesus enjoy all the, all the benefits that come with Him. With Jesus, namely, comes eternal life. So we believe in Him. We have Him. We cling to Him and Him alone. And that truth alone gives us confidence and hope and peace for even the hardest days of our life. Thank you, Lord, that... Uh, We know there's something more. We know there's something more.
And even now, even now in the meantime, the good, the bad, and the ugly time, our faith will not be shaken because our faith is not in us. Our faith is in, is in your Son. And He can be trusted. You have given testimony to Him. And you are not a liar. You tell the truth. You are a good Father. And you have given us your Son. You've given us your Spirit as an earnest deposit on the promise that we have eternal life. So come what may, we trust in your death and resurrection, Christ, for all of our hope, for all of our joy, for all of our peace, for all of our confidence. We who believe in Jesus, we stand confident in him. And even this morning, Lord, we say that we are blown away by all that you've accomplished through your Son on our behalf. And so, Lord, as we sing now, we sing amazed. We sing amazed. In Jesus' name, who is our cornerstone, we pray. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.